You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning, we're looking primarily at chapter 21. You'll find this on page 930 of the Pew Bible. We're going to start our reading at Acts 20, verse 36, and then go to Acts 21, verse 14. So it's page 930 in the Pew Bible. Acts 20, verse 36, through Acts 21, verse 14. Hear the word of God. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. And said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded... We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Well, having concluded his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, Paul headed to Jerusalem as we read. He had commended them, you'll remember, to God and to the word of his grace, to the gospel. And I can imagine that it must have been an emotional scene because they all believed that they would never see each other again. Paul was reluctant to leave them and they were loath to part with him. And so it was amid many tears that they said their goodbyes and the apostles set sail from Miletus. 
And the Lord was guiding him to the holy city where he had hoped to observe Pentecost. And Luke provides us, as you can see, with a rather detailed itinerary of their travels through the Mediterranean. A major stop along the way was a tire where the ship unloaded its cargo. And it was there that Paul and his companions met with their local disciples and stayed for seven days, an entire week. And the Holy Spirit prompted the Christians who gathered in Tyre to warn Paul. They urged him to abort his mission of traveling all the way to Jerusalem. There was danger on the horizon. They said that he could face imprisonment or even death itself. And we can imagine these believers were insisting on his safety and imploring him to divert his course. Nothing but trouble awaited him in Jerusalem, so they prophesied these grave warnings and they begged him not to go there. They pleaded with him to call it off. And they thought that God's glory could be better served if the apostle would avoid suffering. We get that. But Paul was determined. And at the end of the week, it was time for him to set sail. So kneeling on the beach, they prayed together and he said farewell to the brethren. And after a few more stops along the way, they arrived at the port of Caesarea, getting ever closer. And there we're told he's lodged with Philip the Evangelist and his four prophetic daughters. And when this prophet Agabus arrived, he was led by the Spirit to again warn the Apostle Paul. He tells him, that he would be bound and arrested and delivered over to the Gentiles. So here we have the second time that we know of that the Holy Spirit gave such a solemn warning. And Luke says that he himself and the others pleaded with Paul. Paul, don't you hear what the Holy Spirit is saying? Turn back. After all, why would God make known these dangers if not to divert the apostle? It seemed as if God was closing the door. And it seems we have a difficulty, doesn't it? It appears on the surface as if the Holy Spirit is giving conflicting guidance. Earlier, Paul had said in chapter 20 that he was going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Chapter 20, verse 22, that's what he said. He was heading that way, compelled by the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, and with the same breath in chapter 20, this is what Paul added. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. Okay. So here we have what appears to be conflicting divine testimony. Are you with me? You see, on the one hand... God is compelling the Apostle Paul to travel to Jerusalem. On the other hand, God is warning him and cautioning him with respect to all the dangers that await him. It's as if the Lord is saying, Paul, go there, and yet, Paul, don't go there. Both at Tyre and again at Caesarea, the Spirit apparently tried to dissuade him. So what do we make of this? What does the Spirit's guidance, or why does the Spirit's guidance seem to be so self-contradictory? 
God's word told Paul to go to Jerusalem. God's providence seems to discourage his trip. To quote John Stott, are we to blame Paul for his obstinacy or admire him for his unshakable resolve? Which is it? Well, it can't be that the God, the Holy Spirit, contradicted himself. It can't be. It is and has to be only the appearance of a contradiction because it's not really one. One of the fundamental presuppositions about God is that he is incapable of error. He doesn't contradict himself. That would be impossible and absurd. Otherwise, what we would have is an imperfect deity. But that's an oxymoron, isn't it? By definition, God is a perfect being. He has all the perfections in himself. And so he is perfectly consistent with himself. Contradiction is absolutely impossible. And by the way, this is a foundational principle for interpreting the Bible. There's no contradictions. So the problem's got to be with us. God cannot lie. He cannot make mistakes. He cannot be at odds with himself. So there has to be some other explanation for this seeming contradiction. Let's consider three things that we know. First, it's clear that the Holy Spirit commanded Paul's trip. Consider what Luke said after the riot took place in the city of Ephesus in chapter 19. I quote, After these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. His resolution was in the Spirit. It was prompted by the Holy Spirit. So his purpose to visit Jerusalem was by direction of God himself. That's number one. We know that. Number two, the predictions of trouble were not prohibitions of traveling. Do you see the difference there? Facing danger is hard, but it's not necessarily sinful. In Tyre and Caesarea, the prophecies simply foretold of the difficulties. Ordinarily, you and I might try to avoid those difficulties, but one is not required to dodge them. Indeed, by predicting hardship, God did not forbid Paul from going. In fact, the plan itself, as we noted, was instigated by the Spirit. So the predictions simply indicated what to expect in the course of duty. We know that's number two. Number three, Paul himself declared his purpose in his farewell address. He said, and I quote, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So his course and his ministry, appointed by Christ, was to testify to the gospel of God's grace. This he was to do in Jerusalem, and after that in the capital city of Rome. So Paul, under the divine direction of the Holy Spirit, was to go on this journey. The hardships would provide opportunities to testify to the gospel. And let me just say that perhaps nowhere do Christians witness more effectively than in suffering. Elsewhere, the apostle himself explains this curious 
phenomenon. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross. That's how the Apostle Paul understood the gospel. And everywhere he proclaimed a crucified Christ that were redeemed through his blood. And it's only by placing trust in him that a sinner can hope to be saved. What better way to testify to that kind of gospel than through obedient suffering? Besides, disciples are to follow their master, and Paul was willing to suffer. A disciple is not above his master, and a servant is not above his teacher. But then the question arises in my mind, okay, we know these things, but why the predictions of suffering? Why announce those, Lord? Why not encourage Paul at the moment when he needed it? Or so we think. Well, the predictions of trouble were not meant to dissuade Paul, but to prepare others. Paul knew what he was about. He knew where he was going and whom he was to glorify. And like Jesus himself, he had set his face like flint toward the city of Jerusalem. Warnings were designed to prepare the early church for Paul's suffering. Think of it. If the apostle is arrested and indicted and imprisoned and eventually executed, it would have been terribly baffling. He's an apostle. So what God is doing in his mercy is informing his people beforehand to prepare them for it. God didn't want the early church to become overly distraught or downcast. Paul's arrest and imprisonment might have been a severe blow to the faith of those who were totally unprepared. When he was actually in prison, he wrote to the Philippians, and this is what he said. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served for the advance of the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's explaining why this is happening. And wasn't this the same principle at work in the ministry of our Lord himself? He repeatedly warned his disciples of his impending crucifixion. And he said this, I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. The prior predictions of Christ's death were to be means of confirming their faith. At the time when he told them, it confused them. It grieved them. They didn't understand it. But afterwards, when he was crucified and risen, they realized that it was all according to God's eternal counsel. And so on the day of Pentecost, you have Peter saying something like this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you see, when Jesus gave them the prediction of his death, it tested their faith and bolstered their confidence and continued deepening their assurance. And it was confirmation of what he himself had predicted beforehand. So the predictions of Paul's suffering on the way to Jerusalem were to prepare the church. And yes, at the time, it confused them, it grieved them. 
But after it happened, they realized that it was according to God's eternal counsel. And the apostle himself was fully prepared to suffer and die for the cause of Christ. And after Agabus' prophecy, when the believers urged Paul not to go, Paul answered them, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's because he had a lively faith and a clear conscience and a sincere hope of eternal life. In fact, elsewhere, he confesses that his desire is to depart and be with Christ. That would be far better. Indeed, he told those weeping that he would die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And you remember, you remember when the devil slandered Job. What did he say? All that a man has, he will give for his life. But we can say of the apostle, all that Paul had, he would give for his Lord. That's the difference. Unbeliever, believer. And what better way is there to testify to the gospel of the grace of God than to die well? All the martyrs throughout history of the world are striking illustrations of that very truth. We remember them. We rehearse their histories. Why? Because they died well. But of course, the greatest example is that of our Lord Jesus himself. He knew what awaited him when he was on his way to Jerusalem. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestled with the prospect of bearing our sin. And as he agonized in prayer, Luke tells us that his sweat became like great drops of blood. But Jesus settled the matter. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Death on a cross bearing the full burden of sin is an unimaginable burden. You and I, stretch our imaginations if we can, cannot even conceive of what it's like to suffer under the infinite weight of God's wrath. But Jesus knew it. He knew that it was his Father's will that he suffer and die for sin. And thus, he testified to the gospel of God's grace. And in so doing, he accomplished salvation. Because he knew that unless he bore that guilt and endured that wrath, there would be no salvation. The apostle tells us, for the joy that was before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the joy of which he speaks is the joy of God's glory and the joy of our salvation. That's what motivated Jesus. So despite knowing about the cross, he headed straight for Jerusalem. And there he shed his blood on that tree in order to accomplish redemption. He had resigned his human will to obey the will of his Father. And the same spirit that filled the heart of Jesus was at work in the soul of Paul. And if you and I wish to be saved, the same spirit must be at work in us. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the only reason that anybody can believe. There's no regeneration, there's no new birth, then there's no faith. The Holy Spirit had given Paul a new birth, and the apostle's heart had been changed. And that's the only way to enter the kingdom. You can't do it on your own, and neither can I. Because Paul was a new creature in Christ, he was able to face the hardships with courage. And you and I can live the Christian life sincerely only if we're new creatures in Christ. And I don't want you to let this truth slip by without having your thoughts focused on it. You cannot see or enter the kingdom of God unless the Spirit changes your heart. It's entirely up to Him. The new birth is according to His sovereign good pleasure. And today the Spirit may be pleased to regenerate. Then again, He may not. It's up to Him. You and I had nothing to do with our physical birth. We had nothing to do with our spiritual rebirth. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the only thing that you and I can do is position ourselves to hear the word which he uses. He's pleased to work through the outward and ordinary means of grace, as we talked about in Sunday school. And he says the word is what he'll bless. Because as Paul puts it, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased him through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So if the Holy Spirit is pleased to renew your heart and give you new life today, then bless God for it. If he does not do that today for you, then pray that he'll be pleased to do it for you tomorrow. You're not in control, and neither am I. Saving faith in Christ is a gift from on high, a gift, freely given, freely received. And so we wait upon God, waiting at his gates, waiting beside his doors, And thus Paul determined to testify to the gospel of God's grace by suffering for Christ. The Spirit prompted him to travel and gave warnings to prepare the church. And it was all from the goodness of the God who knows the beginning and the end. And Luke concludes, well, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. But this raises a question in my mind concerning the way that you and I are to live the Christian life. You know, many people make life decisions based upon the events that take place around them. That is to say, they make decisions by trying to interpret providence and not the word. Someone might say something like this, and you probably heard it. Well, I did that because it seemed that God had opened the door. If an opportunity arises, they take it to mean the leading of God's Spirit. That's interpreting providence. But they fail to ask the questions. Is it lawful? 
Is it wise? Or they interpret difficulty and hardship the opposite way as a closed door. Clearly, God doesn't want me to suffer, so this path can't possibly be the right way. And so the question is this, should we ever discern God's leading through the events of providence? Had Paul done that and avoided Jerusalem, many in the capital city of Rome would have been left to perish. Because he tells the Philippians, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How are we as believers to determine what to do in any given situation? Theologians distinguish between God's secret will and his revealed will. Have you ever heard that? Secret will, revealed will. Deuteronomy 29, for example. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So God's secret will is that which has been decreed from eternity and governs his providence. Secret. God's revealed will is that which is written in the Bible and governs our lives. Now, neither you or I can peer into the secret will of God. It was decreed from eternity and it's hidden. Providence simply unfolds. That which he determined from the far reaches of eternity is a secret thing, but we can know his revealed will. Solomon says the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Trying to interpret providence is futile, if you ask me. How often are we confused by it? I don't understand the things that are going on around in this world. But seeking to interpret Scripture provides light, gives understanding. And Paul illustrates for us the proper way of discerning and following God's will. So let's live life in obedience to God's word and not in reaction to God's providence. As Ernie read, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Years ago, my friend was desperate to find a wife. He was an impulsive person, and coupled with the fact that he was a charismatic at a charismatic conference, it made him ripe for making a rash decision. You know where this is going, I think. During the conference, he prayed that God would introduce him to his intended wife. And shortly thereafter, he sat next to a young lady whom he had known for three days. Three days. He enjoyed their conversation. He took note of several, what he called, strange correlations between them. Coincidences was his term. And he interpreted these as proof of God's leading. So six weeks later, they were married and en route to becoming missionaries. So rather than basing his decision on biblical principles, he did so on the basis of providential events. They barely knew each other. He didn't really know her history, her character, her desires, her habits, and they had tremendous difficulties to overcome in their marriage. Now, 
I wasn't sure if I should tell you how it turned out, but I figured some of you want closure. <laughs> Thankfully, by God's grace, they worked things out. But it was rough going for a while. Very rough. And as believers, they were able to adjust and make peaceful and fruitful their home. But you know something? They are the exception. That is no way to make such a weighty decision in the Christian life. So in determining God's will and making life decisions, what are we to do? And John Flavel helps us. Six things for those of you who like lists. Number one, fear God, because this is the starting point of all true wisdom. The foundation of the Christian life is filial, reverential fear of God. A believer's overriding desire should be to please his heavenly Father, not to earn his favor, but to give thanks for it. Second, study Scripture, because it reveals what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Learn about God. Know his attributes and how he works in the lives of his saints. Make note of his traits and the traits of a true Christian and the principles that guide a believer's life. Let the Bible inform your conscience so you understand your duty. Third, obey what you know. Put into practice the truths that you understand to this day. Don't waste time doing nothing, waiting for signs from heaven. Often it's in the course of obedience that God reveals the next step. We're told this in Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. So generally speaking, you and I are to worship and serve and obey God. Do what you know. Keep hearing, keep studying, keep praying, and he'll guide you. Fourth, pray for illumination. Ask God to guide you in the path of duty. And that's so important that without it, none of the other steps would count. As you said this morning, Ezra prayed and fasted at the river Ahava to seek from God a safe journey. And if you want to have his guidance, you need to ask for it. Those who seek the Lord, we're told, lack no good thing. That's fourth. Fifth, follow providence. Don't interpret it. Follow providence insofar as it agrees with Scripture, because events are going to happen. But don't do anything that violates God's will. Don't let favorable circumstances dictate your decisions like open doors and don't let unfavorable events dissuade you from duty, like closed doors. Even the most difficult hardship is no sure indication of God's displeasure. Job, poor Job, he suffered and was at a loss to figure out the will of God. His friends come along, Job, providence seems to suggest you're in sin. Job says, I go forward, he's not there. I go backward, I don't understand or perceive him. He turns to the right hand, I don't even see anything of him. He was perplexed. And providence provided no clues. But he remained true to God's word. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all these things, he didn't sin with his lips. Never tried to discern God's will by seeking to interpret providence. Oftentimes, God sends things in his providential working to test your faith. Sixth and finally, know yourself. Get acquainted with your strengths and your weaknesses because each one of us is prone to certain sins while we're not inclined to others. Isn't that true? One person is headstrong. Another person is lazy by nature. Another person perhaps is over-anxious. If you're disposed to impulsiveness, then always try to exercise double caution, like my friend. If you're prone to over-anxiety, then stir up your courage and step out in faith on the promise of God. And whoever you are, know yourself and try to conform to God's word. Those are the things that we can do to try to follow the will of God in our lives, and we pray that God would enable us to do so. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's example. We see him resolved to do his duty, even in the face of great difficulty. And in so doing, he followed the example of his master. Father, we pray that you'll help us to be the same way and to follow the same course. Regardless of providence, we pray that we can hold fast to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.